As we come to Hosea 11, we're really coming to a 14-hour party in the 11th hour. And so we need some context to really understand and truly apply what we're going to read to our lives and appreciate it. And so if you're in Hosea 11, actually flip a couple chapters back to chapter 1 as we briefly just lay out some context this morning. So what we learn in chapter 1 is that Hosea was called to be a prophet prophet in northern Israel. This is after the ten tribes have split from the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and the throne of David. And they've established their own kingdom in the north. So the northern kingdom. And Hosea actually comes on the scene somewhat early compared to the other prophets. That's why he's placed first in the minor prophets, which are listed chronologically. As is reflected in the long list of kings in verse 1, Hosea, he has a long and a unique ministry And Hosea's ministry was unique even among the prophets because he wasn't just called to preach a message that was given to him by God, but also because his very marriage and family life was an object lesson to and about the people of Israel. From the time of the creation of the kingdom of northern Israel, the country had one awful king after the other. There there wasn't a good one in the bunch, and sure... If we were looking at it from a human standpoint, the kingdom had periods of financial stability, they had periods of growth, they had periods of prosperity, and so we might label that successful and we might label their kings as good kings, but spiritually the land was a barren wasteland from start to finish. Northern Israel was where Elijah and Elisha had their ministries, where at the time of Elijah there were literally only 7,000 men who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal and who were faithful to Yahweh. And that only got worse as the years progressed. And so with that backdrop, Hosea is called. And he's called to essentially play the part of God as he's called to marry a woman who Hosea is told will be unfaithful to him. And the purpose was that Hosea's marriage with this woman named Gomer would reflect God's covenant relationship with Israel. And so here's the picture. On one side, you have Hosea whose name actually comes from the same verb as the names Joshua and Jesus, which means to save or to deliver. And so on that side, you have God, you have the Savior, the Deliverer, the covenant-making faithful husband. And then on the other side, you have Gomer, you have Israel, who is utterly unfaithful and spiritually adulterous toward her husband. And that's a massive lesson in and of itself. But the object lesson doesn't stop at the marriage. God tells Hosea that he's going to have three children with this woman, two of which are implied to have uncertain lineage, the last two. Um, They might not even be Hosea's, and yet they're his. And these children were given specific prophetic names about God's relationship to Israel. For instance, the third child and the second child would be named not my people um, and no mercy. Um, And this For the son who would be named not my people, this meaning behind it in chapter 1, verse 9 is this. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And for an Israelite, you can't get more serious than that. That's their entire national identity. There is no more dire situation. The question is, has God finally rejected his people? Later in history, Isaiah and Jeremiah will describe the exile of Israel into Assyria as a certificate of divorce. Was that permanent? Are they truly not his people today? Did his patience run out with them? And when we think about God's patience with Israel and whether it ran out with them, the question 
will, of course, pop up in our minds. If God's patience can run out with them, can it run out with me? If you're a believer, I'm sure you've had this doubt before, especially as you continue to grow in your spiritual maturity and see exactly how sinful you are. Lord, how can you love me? How can I be right with you when I am so unfaithful to you? So as we look at Hosea's prophecy for 10 chapters, though there's some gloriously hopeful passages in there, it doesn't look good for Israel. In fact, chapter 10 ends this way. It says, you have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. That's bleak. That's as dark and hopeless as you can get. So where's that beauty? I promise. Well, that gets us to chapter 11, where the imagery shifts a little bit. It shifts from a husband and his unfaithful wife to that of a father and his son. And as we think of Hosea's family situation, maybe he turns from talking to Gomer and he's now bending down and talking to his son, not my people. And here we'll see the father's love for his son. These are God's thoughts, his views, his emotions toward his son. And as we go through this, the outlines on the back of your bulletins, we'll, we'll see God's love for his son Israel in four ways. First, in adopting and raising him in verses 1 through 4. Then in disciplining him, verses 5 through 7. Third, by being faithful to his character in verses 8 through 9. And then finally, by calling back and restoring his wayward son in verses 10 through 12. So let's read the passage, uh, and then we'll dig in deeply. Chapter 11 starts this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering bur- offerings, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. And they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. We begin with the adoption and the raising of Israel in verses 1 through 4. As I I read, verse 1 begins, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called 
my son. So after laying out Israel's numerous sins and the reason for their coming judgment in 10 chapters, God goes back to the beginning with language from Deuteronomy and Exodus. Israelite hearing this would recall the Exodus, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, where God tells them the reason why he chose them as a people. He says, therefore, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So reading that, a question we might ask is, why does God go back to the Exodus? That isn't really the beginning. Why doesn't he go back to Jacob or Isaac or Abraham? And the reason he goes to the Exodus is because that was really the birthplace of Israel as a nation. And it was where God first called Israel his son. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, it says, Then he shall say, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This is the birth. This is the adoption of Israel as a people holy to Yahweh, a nation of slaves delivered from their bondage. And so here's the picture that God paints in verse 1. This is baby Israel being called to the loving arms of his father. It's a picture that is universal to us. You don't have to be a parent to be able to vividly picture this and understand this. After service, you could go to either courtyard and see this. We're blessed with many young families in this church of a little boy or girl crying. That's not the good part of the picture. But they're crying and their father's extending his arms saying, come here, come here to comfort him. And this is what God did for Israel. And so how was this calling seen? Well, he called them to him by giving them his perfect law, giving them good leaders and kings like Moses and Joshua and David, and in the giving of his prophets to warn them when they're disobeying his law and to call him back to him. All of that was the calling of a father to his son. Come here, come here. But as God tells them in verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. The more God showed his faithfulness to them, the more they were unfaithful to him. And so the imagery progresses from a newborn now to that of a child beginning to walk. God tells them that it wasn't Baal, it wasn't Molech, it wasn't any other idol that taught them how to walk. It was him. Again, this is universally understandable. It's vivid imagery. I don't have any children of my own, but I live with the Thompsons and have for a couple years, and they have small children, and I've been extremely blessed to not only get to see Laura take her first steps, their firstborn, but also Luke. And seeing Austin and Emily hold their little arms as they take those weebly-wobbly first steps, um, it's sort of like an orangutan pose when they have their arms up, right? And, and we know this. Uh, we can imagine this. And at some point, the parent lets go, and the baby takes their first step or two on their own. And we have the image of the inexpressible pride and joy and love and excitement and wonder of a parent watching their child take their first steps. And if you're a parent, you probably have 75 pictures of that moment on your smartphone right now. But then inevitably, the baby falls and the waterworks start. But 
even then, almost instantaneously, the, here comes dad or mom to scoop them up, to kiss their boo-boo, to make it better, and then set them on their feet to try again. That's verses 3 through 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. When you saw a parent do this with a child, or you experienced it firsthand as a parent, did you know that God designed that as a picture of his love for his children? Of the tender care and love of God, the creator of the universe, the immortal, holy, transcendent, omnipotent, sovereign ruler, bending down to take care of his finite, sinful, unfaithful children, leading them with cords of kindness and bands of love, easing their yoke, their burden, from slavery to freedom, providing them manna in the wilderness, eventually cities that they did not build, vineyards that they didn't plant, and crops that they didn't grow. And how was this kindness and love and calling repaid? It was repaid with a running away. Israel ran further and further away from him. Instead, they said, Baal gave us those things. Molech has caused us to prosper. And even this we can see in children. Once they're mobile, it's like they're playing a game of, let's see how I can kill myself today. Uh, to pu- pull a Jerry Seinfeld, what's the deal with electrical outlets? Uh, why are babies so fascinated with them? They reach out for them and Mom and dad have to say, don't do that, because you'll get seriously injured if you play with that. And then, of course, mom and dad look for a way for a second, or if the baby is particularly rebellious, they don't even have to look away. They can stare him directly in the eye, and they'll start reaching out for it again. And so mom and dad have to pick up their precious child and put him on the other side of the room. But then he turns away, and what happens? The child immediately makes a beeline for that electrical socket again. And so if they just go on their own, if there is no intervention by the parents, that child is literally headed for his destruction. He's going to kill himself whether he fully understands the warnings his parents gave him or not. And so then what is the parent to do? Well, if the parent loves their son, they will intervene and they will discipline him so that he may understand how serious of a situation this is. Proverbs 13, 24 tells us, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Loving parents discipline their children. Not because they take joy in seeing their children uncomfortable or feel pain, but because they care enough to correct behavior in them that is leading them to destruction. Whether that is plain disobedience to their parents or having sinful attitudes or other sinful behavior. From the birth of their nation... Israel was a rebellious and wayward child, which was kicked into high gear after the nation split in two. Remember the golden calf incident after the exodus where the people almost immediately fell into idolatry? Remember how it was written down by Moses for the purpose of not only recording Israel's history with God, but also to provide future generations a first-rate example as what you should not do and what utter foolishness is? Like Moses is literally speaking to God on Mount Sinai when the people are down the mountain and they can literally see the clouds and the smoke and hear the thunder of God's voice speaking to Moses and they are making an idol in the shape of a cow and saying that statue they just made with their hands 
that didn't exist five seconds earlier is the God that delivered them from Egypt. Remember that and the the judgment that followed after them? What a memorable lesson. Surely the future generations of Israel would know better than to try and do something that stupid again. Well, you'll never guess how the nation of northern Israel began. Even though God promised their first king that if he would just be faithful to Yahweh, he would have a dynasty like David's, you know, that eternal dynasty, the king was fearful that when the people returned to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices to Yahweh, that their hearts would grow fond toward David again, and they would want to again be yoked under the kingdom, kingship of David. And so instead of trusting Yahweh, he built not one but two golden calf idols and told the people that they were their gods who brought them out of Egypt to worship and to worship those instead. And instead of stoning that king and being obedient to Yahweh, the people followed him. Clear disobedience, clear idolatry. The people know this from scripture. They knew better. And yet the people followed the king instead of God. They worshiped the golden calves. And from there until Hosea's time, things just got worse. Israel was defined by their idolatry, their injustices, their child sacrifices. Just to name a few of their sins, one horrible king after another, and the people following suit because nationally, physically, they were doing well. They were prospering. This was their thinking. We're doing so well. Yahweh must be blessing us. Who else could it be? In reality, they were really provoking and storing up the wrath of God, and now he commands Hosea to tell them that his patience has run out with them. And thus, in verses 5 to 7, we see the love of the father disciplining his son. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall raise against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them. Because of their own counsels, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. This happened. This is fulfilled prophecy. And Hosea might have even lived to see it come true. That's how long his ministry was. He says, you won't be going back to Egypt. And Israelites, good. We like that. Well, hold your horses there, buddy. Because instead you're going to Assyria. Much worse. They refused to repent. Willful disobedience. They instead relied on their own counsels, their own cunning. We'll make alliances here and here. We'll build up our fortresses there and there. We'll store this amount of emergency food and we're good from anything. Nothing can touch us. We can rely on ourselves and our idols. All of that turned to ash. Destroyed. If you read through Hosea, the judgment is very graphic. You read a little bit of the babies being dashed to pieces. It's horrific. And it's coming to them because they are bent on turning away from Yahweh. The inclination of their hearts are toward disobedience. It's toward destruction. Just as a young child's heart is bent on playing with the electrical outlet. He can do no other. But when this destruction comes upon them and they outwardly are confronted with their foolishness for trusting in themselves and in idols, then it says that they will cry out to the Most High. And that sounds good. That sounds like repentance. But God says that he's not going to raise them up at all when they cry out. He won't answer them. The question is why? And it's because he knows that 
Their tears are crocodile tears. It's this thought of we finally need something from you, so save us. There's no true faith at all. There's no repentance at all, and so they will receive no answer at all. This is bleak. It seems to be the end. Is this discipline really a final condemnation and punishment? Has the father's love for his son run out? That certainly can happen with human parents. And so can it happen with the Almighty toward his children? And here's where we have to quote the Apostle Paul, who emphatically says many times in Romans as he answers his phantom critics, by no means. The Father's love is not run out because he'll always be faithful to his character. As we see in verses 8 to 9, that's our third point. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One, in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. He tells them, you're my boy. You're my son whom I love, whom I taught how to walk. How can I give you up? How can he make them like Adma and Zebuim, two cities described in, or listed in Deuteronomy 29-23 as that of Sodom and Gomorrah, same valley, same destruction, utterly destroyed in God's anger and wrath toward their sin. There's no brick left of them. There's nothing remaining to be rebuilt. They're gone forever. And so by mentioning them, God is comparing Israel to them. They deserve that. They deserve to be utterly destroyed, gone from the face of the earth. But he tells them, but how can I make you like that? My heart recoils within me. My, heart, my compassion grows warm and tender. He'll say virtually the same thing to them through the prophet Jeremiah, a little bit later in their history. Jeremiah 31.20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. He's using terms and imagery that they and we can easily understand. As Israel chases after their mute, lifeless, and loveless piles of wood and rocks that they call their gods, here in stark contrast is Yahweh, their living, speaking, loving Father. And so then what is God saying here? What is this? I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. We might ask, is this God's love overpowering and overriding his justice? That's how many might interpret this passage today, that God is too loving to bring harm on his people, to punish his people, to ordain their suffering, or even to cast the wicked into hell. After all, God is love. But it is precisely because God is love that northern Israel was destroyed and the people went into exile. The command for parents to discipline their children is modeled after the example of God the Father toward his children. This is what the Lord did and is still doing today with Israel. As Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, he says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves he whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. As an example of this, we could go back in Israel's history a little bit to see this played out, this discipline, to their namesake. If the Lord hated Jacob, 
as he did Esau, he would have let Jacob live as Esau did, wild, free, without discipline, doing whatever he wanted, wanted without any sort of correction or trouble. But he loved Jacob, which is why when the brothers were finally reunited after those decades apart, Jacob was all haggard and limping to the meeting while Esau was perfectly fine with an army. The Lord was refining Jacob through the years of his hard trials and his labors. He didn't do that for Esau. God loves and is not going to utterly destroy Ephraim, the people. The kingdom will be destroyed. Northern Israel is gone. But he will preserve a remnant by his grace. And look at the reason for why he will have this mercy on them in verse 9. He says, For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. It's his holiness. And he's actually quoting Numbers 23, 19 there. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fill it, fulfill it? He's the Holy One. He's made an eternal covenant with them through Abraham and he will not break it despite what they do on their side. And when we think of this, that he's preserving them because of his holiness, it seems like it should be the opposite, at least to us. That because he is holy, and perfect, and righteous, and sinless, and just, God has to deal with sin. He has to punish it. And that's right. But if we're not careful, we might be tempted to think that God's holiness and his love are opposed to one another. That they're in this eternal struggle where sometimes God's love wins, and sometimes God's justice Wins So his holiness, it wins in the Old Testament where we see all this judgment. But then Christ comes and there's God's love overpowering his, his justice. Again, quote Paul, by no means. As we see here, his love for Israel in verse 8 and his holiness in verse 9, they're perfectly united in the same goal. Israel will be disciplined for their sins, a discipline that is still going on today as they're separated from God having rejected the Messiah. Generations and generations of Israelites from the time of Hosea through today are dying covered in their sins and separated from God as enemies. That's the discipline of the Lord upon Israel. That's a real discipline against his son or on his son. And yet it is the most loving act toward them as he is refining them for the future that he describes for them in verses 10 through 12. When he calls back and restores his wayward son to himself. In verse 10, Hosea zooms way out into the future, past us, even if the Lord tarries. And he says, They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Whoa, a lion. That sounds bad. Lions are scary. If you're out in the wilderness and you hear the roar of a lion, your first instinct is to run away from the lion. Well, I guess if that happened here, you'd be like, Did I just hear a lion in Cupertino? But you, you get my point. You get what I mean? You run away from the, the roaring lion. Well, not if you're the lion's cub. Continuing on in verses 10 through 11, when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. There's still a fear. There's still this trembling as they answer his roar and run back to him. But it's, it's not a fear of punishment. This isn't that type of fear. They're not running into the maw of a wild beast that's going to devour them. These are a people who fully understand who they are in comparison to how great and magnificent God is. 
These are a people who fully understand who they are, who comprehend the, the wrath of God, what they are being called from, and the safety that is found only in the loving arms of their father. There's coming a day when, as Paul talks about in Romans 11, there will be a mass revival in the people of Israel. When a Zechariah 12 describes they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn him in true repentance and faith. It may be in our lifetimes, it may be after, but this is going to happen. And right now God is lovingly disciplining his son Israel for this day. As verse 12 indicates, it's not going to be in Hosea's day. When Hosea first delivered this message, Judah was doing all right, but as Hosea is going to lay into them in the very next chapter, they weren't really that far behind northern Israel, their brothers, and they're going to face their own exile in the form of Babylon. And so now we're at the end of the chapter, and yet there's this conflict that isn't yet resolved. How can a holy God pass over Israel's sin like this? Sure, they're being disciplined, that's great. But it's already been established that they deserve utter destruction. They deserve to be like Adma and Zebuim. And so again, the question has to be asked, is this God's love for his son overriding his holiness? Well, there is something extremely important about this chapter that I intentionally skipped over. And that important thing is regarding verse 1. Maybe some of you recognize that verse and were, were wondering, huh, I wonder why he didn't mention that Matthew quotes this verse and attributes it to Jesus. So we could tell from verse 1 that God is clearly referring to the past. He's referring to the Exodus as he speaks to Hosea's generation of Israel, getting them to recall his faithfulness and his love toward them. But Matthew quotes this in his gospel in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, as a prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you'd like to turn there, you can, but I'm just going to quickly read it, starting in verse 13 for a little bit of context. Right after the birth of Jesus, it says this, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So that's confusing. What, what's going on, Matthew? Uh, is the rest of Hosea then a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah? Well, we can't say that because Jesus never sacrificed to Baals. Jesus never worshipped idols. Jesus never needed to be disciplined for sin. And so what's going on? What is Matthew doing? Well, first of all, Jesus did fulfill this prophecy. Like Israel, he went down to Egypt and was called out of it by God. And it's that parallel to Israel that Matthew is pointing out. If you remember to when we were first looking at verse 1, I said that it's not just pointing to the the event of the Exodus, but it's also pointing to the very reason why God chose them and delivered them out of Exodus, which he tells them in Deuteronomy 7. And I'll read verses 7 and 8 again. He says that it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he's saying, it's because of my love for you and this promise that I made with Abraham that I have adopted you. And earlier we stopped there, but let's continue on in that passage. Right after he says that, all lovey-dovey, God's love, we love that part. 
make us feel all warm and fuzzy, God then says this, uh, sort of rains on our parade a little bit, verses 9 through 11, he says, Now therefore that the Lord, or know therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying him or them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. It's this severe warning. He will keep his covenant with those who love him, which is shown in their obedience to him. In other words, he will keep his covenant with those who are like him, full of love and faithfulness toward those he is making his covenant with. But in contrast, he will destroy those who hate him, which is proved in how they are disobedient to him. For the thousands of years that led up to Hosea chapter 11, did Israel love or hate God? There were pockets and periods of national love, like under Joshua and David. And there has always been a faithful remnant, even in Hosea's day, but for the most part, we'd have to say that they hated God. That is clearly shown in their disobedience that led to the consequences in verses 5 through 7. But then we saw in verses 8 through 11 that God's not going to destroy them. But God is not a man who lies. So how do we reconcile these two seemingly contradictory truths? We reconcile them in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew quotes verse 1. Here comes the Son who will fulfill the task and requirement that Israel, the Son, failed to fulfill. For all eternity, God the Son and God the Father shared a perfectly united, loving relationship and communion. That didn't end when the Son took on a human nature in the incarnation. At his baptism, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the Father says of the Son, which he then says at the transfiguration as well, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Son's own testimony in John 8, 29 says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Israel failed. They didn't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were not faithful to him, but were disobedient children through and through. They deserved to be destroyed. But where they were disobedient, Christ was obedient. And he's obedient even to the point of death on a cross. On the cross, the perfect, spotless, sinless, beloved, only begotten son took on the sins of all believing Israelites and completely absorbed the wrath of the father against them. That includes Abraham, that includes David, that includes Hosea, that includes Paul, and that includes the sins of that future generation of Israelites that God will roar and call back to himself. Israel, the son called and adopted out of Egypt, is loved by the Father and considered his Son because the beloved Son died on their behalf. Their sins were passed over for a time because God was going to offer up the sacrifice himself. That's wonderful. Praise God for his faithfulness. And praise God that he loves his son Israel to the point that he offered up his only begotten Son as the sacrifice for their sin, that they might be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. But I would guess the majority of us listening... Not all of us are not physically descended from Abraham. And so maybe that's God's love for Israel. After all, they are his people. He called them out of Egypt. But what about us Gentiles? 
What about his church? Is the love that he has for us any different? Is it a lesser love as we are merely adopted and grafted into the tree of Israel? Is it a love that can then run out due to our unfaithfulness? To quote Paul again, by no means. Jesus Christ did not die just to save Hebrews. But as God promised Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And as was predicted through many prophets, including Hosea, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. The beloved son, Jesus Christ, was sent and put forward by the Father and willingly laid down his life to redeem for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Thus the Father calls to himself today his adopted sons and daughters from all over the earth. But before we delve into the Father's love for his children that make up the church, we have to be abundantly clear here. In all that we've seen of the Father's love for Israel, we have to be clear that this is an exclusive group. And that continues when we get into the church. This love that teaches a son how to walk, a love that heals when he falls, a love that disciplines, a love that calls and restores is not a love that is given to those who are not his children. Can we say that God loves unbelievers? In a general sense, sure. He causes the rain to fall on the just and unjust. You can call that love. Can we call every human being a child of God? Well, now you have to be specific. Every human is created by God, and so in that sense, sure, he's their father. But the Bible never calls general humanity the children of God. It's always in reference to believers, whether that's the believers in Israel or, or outside. John 1, 11 through 13 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, the right to become children of God. Likewise, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We need to be adopted out of the world to be considered a son or daughter of God. Before that happens, we are not children of God. We are actually children of Satan and enemies to God. Therefore, if you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, that he died covered in your own personal sin, that his death satisfied the wrath of the Father against you, and that without that sacrifice you would be without hope and unable to reconcile yourself to the Father, and that the righteousness you now have is Christ and Christ alone, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day in victory for you. 
If you have not believed that in your heart and confessed that with your mouth, then everything that I am about to say and everything that I have said about the love of God toward his son does not apply to you. The wrath of God abides on you right now. And unless you repent of your sins and believe, it will remain on you. And so that important note out of the way to those, however, who have been saved by the lavish mercy and grace of God in Christ, listen up. You have been adopted by God at a great cost, the cost of the blood of his beloved son. That adoption has made you brothers and heirs to Christ. Romans 8, 29 to 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Hallelujah. We can affirm that. But then we sin and our doubts set in. Or we go through a trial and our doubts set in. Or we're just prone to doubt and our doubts set in. Maybe we think, oh, I'm just an adopted child. Surely that love doesn't compare to that of a blood-related child. It has to be this lesser kind of love. I'm just adopted. A love that runs out when God realizes just how big of a screw-up I actually am. Well, I know a man who married a woman who was a single mother. In fact, it was through their child, her child, who was a very young child at the time, that the man and his future wife started dating. She was working and needed help for a couple hours on some days uh, when the son needed to be looked after and daycare was expensive. It's still expensive. And so this man, he heard about it and said, I'll look after him uh, every now and then when I can. And he did. And over time, he got to know the boy. He got to know his shortcomings, his fears, his sins, his warts and all. After a while, he began dating and then married the boy's mother and became the boy's father. Happy family. And in the due course of time, his wife became pregnant with their first, quote-unquote, first child. Come to find out that it was going to be a boy. Another son, joyous gift from the Lord. Exciting. But the young boy had a problem. He had a, he had a fear. Now that this person who had become his father is going to have a son of his own, a blood son, Would he be pushed off to the wayside? Would he now be unloved because he's just the adopted son? And so the boy went to the man and relayed his fears to him. And this is what the father said to his son, paraphrasing. He said to him, I don't know the new son. I've never met him. I don't know his personality. I don't know what he'll be like. I don't know if we'll have anything in common. I don't know him. He's a gift from God, and so I'm sure I'm going to love him. But in some sense, I have to be that boy's father. But you, on the other hand, I got to know. I know you. I spent time with you. I know your faults. I know your personality. I know what you like and what you dislike. And I chose to be your father. He chose to set his love upon his son. And in a similar but infinitely more glorious manner, the father says the same to you in Christ. Adopted love is no lesser love, especially when it comes from God the Father. Did you not hear what Paul said in Romans? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He knew Israel would be unfaithful to him before he ever called him, before he ever created them, before he ever called them out of Egypt. He knew that. He called them anyway. And the same is true of you, believer. Beloved, listen to what Christ prays in John 17, 23, and really listen 
to what he says here. Process what it means. He, sa- he prays to the Father, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. As the president of Cornerstone Seminary would say, that's a verse that we want to self-correct in our minds. How can the Father love us as much as he loves the beloved Son? It's incomprehensible. How could he love us as much as he loves Jesus Christ? He's the perfect one. He's the only begotten Son. In stark contrast, we're adopted. We're not the blood Son. We're, and to call us less than perfect is one of the biggest understatements we can make in all of words, right? And, and yet Jesus, the perfect, spotless, omniscient God, prayed this. It's a true statement about us and the Father's love for us. But I'm a sinner. Preach it. So am I. Paul does you one better in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But he doesn't stop there. And you can't either if you've been saved by Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Will you face trials in this life due to the hardness of your heart and your sin? Yes. Praise God that you will and that you do. For that shows his love toward you. That he's not leaving you in the deceptive comfortability and pleasure of your sin. He's not letting you play with electrical outlets that will kill you. But like a loving father, he's picking you up. He's giving you a swat or many if you need it. And then he's setting you on your feet and letting you go just as he's doing for his son Israel today. If you're his son, he is leading you with cords of kindness through his spirit and through his word and through his church, and he's stooping down to feed you and to heal you. He does this not out of obligation, not because you're special, not because you have a lot of money or wealth or power or ability, but because he loves you as a father loves his sons and daughters. And as Paul concludes in Romans 8, and as we saw in Hosea 11, it's not a love that runs out. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for our sake, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as Pastor Clift often says, that's something we can go to lunch on. So let's pray. (laughs) Gracious and loving Father, how abounding is your steadfast love towards your children. It's a love that we can't comprehend, and yet it's a love that's real. Help us, Lord, to, to understand it better. Help us to understand your discipline better, that we might better understand your mercy and your grace toward us. Lord, as we reflect on our lives and on our unfaithfulness, we thank you that it's not up to us, Lord. Our salvation is not reliant on our ability or our faithfulness, but it's wholly reliant on your love and your faithfulness, which is displayed in the giving of your Son for our sin. And so help us look to Christ when we doubt, Lord, not to ourselves. Help us look to you and your love when we doubt. Help us to go to one another and encourage one another in your love. And help us to always rest in the fact that your son died for us, Lord, and that we have been saved by your abundant grace and mercy, and that even when we go through trials, it could be your loving hand upon us, refining us and leading us back to you. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.